2: welcome to high stakes episode 34 i'm your host neil orfield you can find me on twitter at player QDFS. DFS high stakes is produced by Mike Lawrence. You can find him on Twitter at awesome. Yo. And today I am joined by Brian Berriman He is a hundred thousand dollar winner in NBA. He won $50,000 in a PGA showdown contest. He crushes PGA generally playing all the time. Just recently, just this past week got third in the main contest at the, uh, in the Corrales. Uh, contest for ten thousand dollars absolutely crushes pga but plays several other sports and does well in those as well he's also the senior product manager here at stochastic fairly new to the team but now a senior product manager he you can find him on twitter at one three airman it's uh it's barryman but the, but the b is a one three uh he is DraftKings username is nd irish 13 brian how are you today
3: what's up neil thanks for having me on man
2: yeah thanks for coming on Uh, I, I got a few questions right away, just related to like your screen names. Uh, what's with the, what's the, I mean, ND Irish, I'll I'll start there, I guess. ND Irish. I assume you went to Notre Dame. (laughs) I
3: wish, man. No, I, uh, I actually went to Illinois state. Um, it was a, it was a blast, but Notre Dame. So growing up, um, you know, I grew up in a family where it was very much football oriented, but only on Sundays. Um, I didn't have a Saturday football team to root for. Uh, college football really wasn't on all that much, just because my dad loved NFL and didn't really care for college. But um, as I got into middle school and started meeting some friends, and they all had these college teams that they were rooting for, I was like, "Well, I want to root for a college team too." Um, and I lived in Chicago, so I wanted to have a uh, a local team that I could, you know, go to if I ever got into like really big fandom. And and so uh, Notre Dame was on every Saturday uh, on NBC, and um, so. Just started watching the games and it was the year I picked to start watching them was the year uh Tyrone Willingham was the coach. Um and they were they were just really, really good. So I was captivated right off the bat. And uh they uh they ended up having a great year, and I was hooked ever since because then it was like um (laughs) my friends at, at school were starting to associate me with the Irish and when they When they lost i would get shit and when they won you know i was talking shit so then it just became kind of like a you know i became attached to them um so over the years that continued and uh actually that screen name was my uh my full tilt poker screen name uh i when i started when i turned 18 i i had to create a uh um a screen name and so i just came up with nd irish and then my favorite number is 13. Uh, it was my baseball number in high school and it's always been my favorite number uh, going back to uh, when I don't know if you remember, like uh, the U of I basketball team, uh, but Corey Bradford was my favorite player okay. back when uh, they were good and they went to the Final Four. Um, so I uh, just ended up like thirteen. so that's how that all came about. All
2: right, my my brother went to Notre Dame. That's part of the reason. He was in the Notre Dame marching band, uh, but probably maybe he was there when you were a kid cheering them on. He's my my older brother, so long time. ago He was a uh, he was at. Uh, at Notre Dame and number 13 also uh, special meaning a lot of people are afraid of the number 13 right people are terrified they don't even <laughs> use the number 13 in buildings I was married on Friday the 13th so uh oh yeah it's, be- it's become maybe my favorite number too it's uh you know a number that has and then I, I got married then a month after it was my first big win in DFS also so uh, I also am a big fan of the number 13 so I was going to ask you the significance about, of that but it's just it was your baseball number and it was your one of your favorite players numbers that, that's just the significance
3: yeah. And I'm always been a guy who likes to be different, like just in general. Um, yeah. I don't like conforming to norms. Um, I play strange golf balls when I play golf because I don't like being the people that, you know, are always playing the, the, the mainstream stuff. I, um, yeah, I've always just tried to separate myself. And uh, as weird as it sounds, like if people were afraid of 13, I was willing to embrace it. And so that's kind of, <laughs> that's just a p- whole part of like the story behind the number. And now it's like, it, now you see it's part of my Twitter handle as well. Yeah. Um, it happens to work because the one and a three together makes a B as well. But, um, but yeah, no, it's a, the number 13 is definitely a big part of kind of my whole life
2: really. Nice. Yeah. Great number. I support it. Um, all right. So we, we heard (laughs) about, uh, Notre Dame being your, your favorite college team, any other favorite athletes or sports teams that you share for?
3: (laughs) Um, I, I laugh when I get this question sometimes because, the answer is so absurd and, and the reactions that I get are, are pretty outrageous. So uh, I'm curious to hear what you have to say. Are but, you going to uh, say
2: Yankees and Lakers? Oh, come on. No, right. no, no, right, no, no,
3: no, 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 So uh, I grew up in a suburb just outside of Chicago, as I mentioned. Yep. And um,
2: I was born into
3: uh, a family that loved football, uh, but it was done at a much different level. My, my dad started going to uh, Bears games with his dad back at Wrigley Field uh, when he was a kid and went to uh, all the games with his dad through through 1985 and through all like the crazy good years that the Bears have had. Um, and so when I was born, my grandpa was kind of ailing and, and couldn't couldn't go anymore. And so um, in 1994, my dad took me to my first Bears game. We have season tickets. They've run in the family for 60 years at this point, maybe even longer. Um, and so in 1994, I went to my first Bears game, and I haven't missed a home game since. Uh, I've been to I've been to every home bears game um, for whatever that is uh, almost 30 years at this point. yeah um, and so the bears are a massive part of my life. Um, unfortunately, in, in some cases they they've caused me a, a ton of sleepless nights, pain, um, yeah, no doubt regret, regret. <laughs> mad at my dad that he didn't choose a better team, whatever. Uh but it's it's in my blood at this point, man. And it's something that I identify very strongly with. And um, you know, it's uh yeah, so it's it's pretty interesting. The Bears are a huge part of my life. I'm a huge Chicago sports fan in general. i uh, love the Cubs, love the Bulls, um cheer for the Blackhawks. But uh the Bears are on this such sure. a higher level for me. Okay. Um it's a year round thing. I follow, you know, listen to all the podcasts, I follow all the moves of the team. It's 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 a huge passion of mine. And uh i didn't really have a choice you know yeah. I, my dad took me out to four, and I, I fell in love with it and now it's uh now it's in my blood man so so yeah seems like
2: as good of a time as i need to be a bears fan what did you think of the trade of the number one pick
3: man i loved it i was so jacked i was like shaking for like 20 minutes because uh of how much we got and then getting yeah. a young controllable player like dj moore who's who's on a relatively team-friendly deal who matches up with justin field's uh timeline it's uh it's fantastic and then getting uh, the future first, the future second, um, I was I was really jacked up about it. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I will say right now of all the years, uh, this is the most excited I've ever been because it feels like we're finally doing it the right way. We're yeah. not just plugging holes with veteran one-year contracts and hoping that they work out. We're building a, a strong, solid, young team. Um, we actually may have a quarterback for once. Uh, the jury is still out on that, understandably. Um, but I've seen him do some things that I don't think I've seen anyone do. And so I'm super excited about it.
2: Yeah, no, I, I I think Justin Fields could be just a great NFL quarterback. It is, as you say, the jury is out, but uh, I, I think they're betting on him. And I think that is a smart bet to make after the the second half that he had of the last season. He was just so good uh, when he started running more. He just like it was just like they couldn't stop him running. And that really opens up the passing game as well. Yeah, I, I love the trade, too. I, so my, my brother-in-law is also from uh, the outskirts of Chicago. So he's raising, of course, my, my nieces and nephews to be uh bears fans also and i texted them and said i love this trade This really exciting trade for the bears And they they were not totally sold on the trade so i was curious to hear what other bears fans saw they, they thought they could have gotten more i was like i think dj moore is fantastic i think it's a great fit with justin fields and then they get the picks as well i thought it was a great great move so i'm with you there
3: yeah and they're still staying inside the top 10 so they should have a shot at getting uh an elite left tackle an elite pass rusher uh, at that spot or if one of the quarterbacks say Will Levis falls out of uh, you know the top eight and he's sitting there at nine there might be a team like Tennessee or someone that wants to move up um, to cool. nine and we could trade back again to get more draft capital so I mean I get it like the number one pick was like this huge thing for the fan base and I was super excited about it too but uh, if you ask anybody in in the industry I mean everyone would say the Bears did really well with that and yeah. uh, I agree
2: and you so you, you grew up in Illinois you went to school in Illinois are you still in Illinois?
3: No. So that's another part of the whole Bears thing. So I moved out to Arizona. Um, Oh, wow. Okay. I moved out to Arizona in 21. Um, Actually, like six weeks after uh, I hit that first big score of mine, uh, which was huge in in terms of like finding a house that my wife and I wanted to purchase. So, um, But yeah, we moved out here and I told my dad when I moved, I said, "Dad, I'm still going to come back to the games. And he kind of was like, yeah, okay, okay uh but um but yeah no I, I i fly back for every home game so uh so yeah the commitment is still there for sure which is yeah. why like i just i just need them to be good neil like can you just give me one one season man once i can't
2: i can't i would rather they not be great as a, as a vikings fan i'm, I'm <laughs> oh, cheering against you fair. but but no i think uh, i think the bears looking pretty good i yeah I, I would love for the bears to be my team to be on i mean the, the vikings have been pretty consistently like pretty good like never great but pretty good the bears i think yeah. uh, have a better chance right now of just becoming great if Justin Fields really does take that step that we're anticipating and the, the picks work out it's a exciting time to be a bears fan i'm sure um it is it
3: definitely is so it, like i said we have a general manager that's willing to do it the right way for once so we'll see if it works out but i i stand by the approach so hopefully uh hopefully it all pans out for us
2: yeah for sure well let's let's jump into your background a little bit so i always yep. start these shows by asking what kind of background do you have in uh, statistics and/or computer programming? Do you have any formal training in statistics or computer programming? Uh, any informal training? How how good are you with these things? Tell me about your background there.
3: Yeah, um, no formal training regarding statistics or computer programming. Um, I guess the statistics end of things came in when I was playing poker. Um, you know, so I really got into the numbers. I really got into you know the pot ads, the EV, all that stuff um you had to do it to be a successful player um one thing about me is i'm i'm very very competitive in everything that i do neil if you were i you and i were in a bar right now and we were playing darts and you beat me i i'd I'd say good game and everything i'm not sore loser but it would eat me up you know i don't like losing at anything that i do um and so as as the dfs stuff started i kind of got into it right after i started playing or stopped playing poker so i stopped playing poker like in 20 15 or so. Um you yeah, I was I was really big into it. I had a you know I had a backer who I'm still a good friends with today. I had um basically like a whole group of guys that I was playing poker with every single day, talking hands. Uh we would go to the World Series Poker every year out in Vegas and uh some great memories, but it was it, it was mentally exhausting. Uh poker is a brutal game and uh DFS can also be a brutal game too. Um as I'm sure you know. So it's like a lot of the parallels are there. Uh, but what I told myself is when I you know I kind of got into DFS is like, I'm going to take a lot of what I learned through my successes and my failures in poker and try to apply them into, into DFS. Um, So quickly after the first year or so, I I learned that I, there was more to it than just trying to pick the right players in DFS, right? Like just trying to pick who you think is going to do well only gets you so far. Um, There's a significant math portion to it and a significant strategy portion to it. Um, that uh, I just wasn't up to date on. Um, yeah. And so, um, you know, through my competitive drive, I started to have to teach myself the statistics angle of it, started to teach myself the computer programming portion of it. Um, so, everything, the training and all that stuff, I hadn't had any of that. It was all basically self taught. Um, I will say, though, through my professional experience, so I got hired um, for one of my first jobs in the product management spaces, which I'm in now, but, um, it was, a, it was sort of my first shot at it, uh, with a company back called the parking spot about five years ago. And, um, in the interview, you know, he, he had asked me, my future boss at the time, had asked me, uh, Hey, are you proficient in Excel? And in my mind being proficient in Excel was like doing conditional formatting and maybe some, some V lookups and stuff. Um, But as I got onto the job, and he was like, you're proficient in Excel, he started asking me to do stuff that I didn't know how to do. Um, And so uh, I had to learn it. And I had to learn it on the fly. And I had to, you know, use YouTube videos and Google and all this stuff to try and figure out how to do certain things. And honestly, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Because now I feel like I'm highly proficient with Excel. And it's been a huge part of my success so far in DFS, for sure.
2: Absolutely. Uh, Yeah. I mean, Excel is uh, extremely useful. I am horrible with it i I know a lot of a lot of the best dfs players out there are really really good with excel Uh, i'm kind of jealous you had that experience where you were forced to learn (laughs) excel on on the fly because that's uh yeah obviously a a very useful skill Uh, let's go back to like the beginning of your professional background so like uh you graduated college uh were you already working by the time you graduated or what what was your first job out of college tell me tell me what kind of your professional background uh up, up to today
3: it's been a, it's been a wild ride. Um, so I graduated from Illinois state in 2012 um, before I had my diploma. I already had accepted a job uh, through a career fair that Illinois state had hosted um, enterprise rent a car was the uh, the company that um, you know, had recruited me and sought me out and, and really wanted me. So I, I accepted that job making $31,000 a year out of college um and that was a very very interesting job while i i learned so much good stuff for it and i'm so grateful for the time that i spent there um it was not it was not a a glamorous job at all um i had to wear a suit and tie every day i had to be clean shaven every day uh i had to wash uh, rental cars i had to vacuum out rental cars um it was a grind you know it was monday through saturday right and so uh yeah i was learning what it was to be a professional right and yeah. right out of college when you're used to taking what for maybe 6 hours of classes a day at most now you're going into a work you know work week where you're 50 60 hours some weeks um it was a it was a tough transition but i learned a lot and um i worked there for like a year and a half and and kind of got promoted up up the ranks a little bit and just decided you know this wasn't what i wanted to do i didn't want to uh sling rental car insurance to people so Um, from there, I started looking for jobs and got hired as an IT recruiter. Um, and so I did that as well for about a year, year and a half and through the IT recruitment experience is how I learned about project and product management. I was, I was recruiting these guys. I was recruiting people that were going to be taking these positions at other companies and I was like, man, I could do what you're doing. Like I'm interviewing these people and I'm like, I know I could do this and I know how much money they're making. And so I started asking them, "Hey, if I wanted to get into that, like, what do I have to do?" And I met one guy in particular who was super, super helpful and just basically said, "Do this, this, and this. Take these certification courses. Do all this stuff, and you'll get into you'll get into it." Uh, and so that's exactly what I did. And then I got hired on at the parking spot, which I touched on a little bit. And I was the uh, the project manager, the loan project manager there for five years, where I did a bunch of uh, web and app based development projects. Uh, so while it, during the day I was, uh, working for an airport parking company by night, I was still grinding DFS, um, basically on a nightly basis. Uh, I would leave lunch sometimes, I would, you know, some of the guys would maybe go out for lunch and I would, you know, take my computer and, and go somewhere, or maybe a building across the street and, and try to narrow down my player pool for the night. You know, like, it's just nice. like, um, DFS has always just been like a huge part of, of me, you know, at least for the last eight, eight years or so. Um. And yeah, so from parking spots, uh, while I was there, and then COVID hit while I was at parking spot, and that's when I decided, okay, you know what, I'm gonna be at home for, for who knows not how long now. And I always had wanted to get into learning how to code with R, mm-hmm. and the reason is I was listening to a podcast with Adam Leviton, and I don't remember the guy's name, but he uh was the he owned and ran the areaarts.com site. I don't remember, the- I don't
2: think I know the guy's name. Is it Josh, okay, jo- Josh Hermsmeyer?
3: Yes, that's it. Okay, Good recall. Um, and so they were on a podcast and they were talking about you know different they got really into like statistics and stuff and uh, um, they started talking about R and how the power of it and what it can do with data manipulation that Excel can't. you know it's just um, in VBA it's like your your VBA scripts through Excel are only going to get you so far um, in, in learning either Python or R is what's going to take, you know, statistical level or statistical analysis to the next level. And so I was like, eventually I want to do that. And so when COVID hit and I knew I was going to be working at home, I was like, all right, this is the time. And I literally just Googled like how to start with R and taught myself. Um, and then once I learned the basics, I just kept building on the knowledge and eventually worked my way up to, to building my own simulator which we can talk about a little later, I'm sure. But um, by doing that, I was able to put that on my resume and fantasy labs contacted me and fantasy labs wanted to hire me um, as a, uh, I think it was like a product analyst. I want to say basically I was going to come in there, look at their current products and kind of take a a view of their, they wanted new eyes on the product. You know, a lot of the same people had been there for a long time and they wanted kind of some new eyes to look at it and see how they could improve. Um, so yeah, I worked there for a little over a year and then uh, transitioned over to Stochastic, which is where I am now. So like I said, kind of like a roller coaster of a ride, you know, starting with uh, rental cars and ending up uh, in a dream job at Stochastic. But uh, every step of the way kind of got me to this point and I'm grateful for all of it.
2: Absolutely. So, so uh, going back to the start, so it sounds like you were uh, recruiting somebody. Was it the person that you were recruiting that you started asking about how to get into what they do?
3: Yeah, man. So that's like you're as a recruiter, like you're so basically you go into work and you get these jobs that you have to recruit for for these companies. And, you know, I specialize a lot in product and project management roles that these companies want us to hire for. And, like I said, as I was talking to these people, as I was interviewing them, as I was bringing them in to meet them, I was like, I can do what you do. And I know how much money you're making. Like, why don't I just do this? Yeah. And so eventually I just got a good relationship with one of the guys and I just said, Hey, like, if I want to do this, what do I got to do? And he literally was great and walked me through all of it, got me into the right certification courses I needed to do. Um, So yeah, that was like probably one of the biggest breaks of my career. But all it took was just asking, right? That's all it really took. And um, it worked out really well for me.
2: Yeah, that's that's a really, that's a funny, but really cool story that you were just willing to ask him. Because, you know, those it can be pretty formal as you're trying to recruit him to do a job, just, uh, you know, asking him questions as well. I'm sure it caught him off guard, but I'm sure he kind of appreciated it too, having somebody that he could lead down that path.
3: Yeah, it was, it, I mean, it was over like a couple months. Right. And so like sometimes okay. through recruiting, like you, you'll call someone off, you know, cold call someone, they'll, they'll, they'll answer and you're talking to them and you know, some guys don't want to talk to you and you don't really have much of a relationship, but other guys, like you really kind of start to form like a relationship with, because you're trying to help them find a job and they're in need yep. of a job um and they know you're trying to help them and sometimes you don't place them right away and so there's this there's this period month or two months or three months where you're talking to them checking in with them seeing how their job search is going and you kind of start to develop a rapport with them Um, and so once i felt comfortable enough after a couple months of talking to them that's when i asked i didn't ask right off the bat um but uh but yeah i mean it was just uh like i said a huge break and something that uh you know i'll always remember
2: Okay. Uh, I'm sure people are going to wonder. So you, you talk about teaching yourself R. People are going to wonder where, like, what what's that? Do you remember any of the bigger sites that you used for like learning R? Cause it's, I mean, you said you just Google it kind of went from there. Do you happen to remember which sites you found to be most helpful?
3: <laughs> I, I don't, this was uh three years ago at this point. So actually probably a little more than that. Um, But I, I found this like free, it was like a free downloadable handbook that some guy put together. It was like, not, it was like maybe 30 or 40 pages. And it was okay. very, very like much like, this is how you start. And, and it, what was great was he was doing a tutorial using MBA statistics. So it was very right. like, yeah, it was very great because I wasn't just using some dummy data. I was using actually, like I was looking at uh, rebounds per game and assists per game. And I was like going through these exercises to learn, you know, the certain commands, like, um, you know, how to sort different, uh, you know, how to subset different data, how to sort different data uh, all the way up to kind of, it never got too advanced, but it gave me a foundational knowledge to where I could Google something and troubleshoot it, debug it and and like go back and forth, back and forth. And eventually like, I've never coded in my life, but I understand now, like when developers are like uh, working on something for a day or two days and they finally figure it out like that feeling is so great because there's just so much frustration at work that goes into to figuring something like that out and when you finally get it to fit out what you're looking for like uh, there's no better feeling so um, really it was just a, a ton of googling a ton of trialing and error and um, kind of trying to like work backwards like how did how did this like um, how do I get to this endpoint? and then working back from there asking questions into Google and stuff um, the information. We, here's the thing, you know, we live in a, a, an era right now where the information is out there. If you want to do it, you can do it. It just you just got to know it's going to take a ton of time and a lot of frustration. And uh, but at the end of the day, if it's something you want to do and you know and you think it's going to help you be a better DFS player or make you more money, um, you can do it. So that's that's kind of what I would say to anyone doing it: just start googling it, and it's, it's baby steps. Just get one percent better every day at R. And eventually you look back and you're like, damn, I just built something and it's pretty cool.
2: That's awesome. Yeah, it yeah. sounds, that sounds really, I'm sure that was really rewarding, especially when it uh, helped you win $100,000 in NBA pretty quickly. That's gotta be a good <laughs> yeah. feeling.
3: It was, man. Like, it was so crazy because, um, you know, for a while I was, I was playing and I, I felt like with the simulator, I felt like I was putting good lamps together and it just wasn't, I wasn't winning. And, you know, I had, a, I had a, like a really kind of long conversation with my wife and i was like you know her name shelby i was like shelby i don't even know if i should keep doing this like it's 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 killing me i'm i'm, I'm getting just really devastated that i'm not i put in all this time to learn this this new thing and uh I, you know, I feel like it's gonna eventually break through but it's just not happening and she's like well why would like why would you quit and i was like because it's just not happening right like i'm wasting my time she goes you've put in so much time like you're you're so close like you can't you can't quit and two weeks later I hit the hundred K. Um, awesome. and so like, yeah, like my wife has been like a huge, huge, huge part of my success only because like she's very much supportive of it. You know, she has never given me shit for staying up late to 1am on Wednesday nights, putting in my golf lineups and, you know, saying, you know, it, it's just been very supportive the entire time. And, um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of crazy. The hundred K thing was awesome, but, uh, but she's a huge part of it too. So.
2: And I'm sure like over time, so that was, you know, you were still maybe earlier on in your process, maybe didn't quite understand the uh, the variance in DFS in general, like how hard it is to win that hundred thousand or, you know, to to win the big prize. It can take a long time and massive downswings before you hit that, even if you are a great player. So I think you have a greater appreciation just for how difficult the game is and, you know, kind of accepting downswings at this point.
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, the downswings and stuff, I had a lot of I had a lot of training and downswings through my, my poker career. Uh, So I, you know, I was very much familiar with variants. I was very much familiar with downswings and how they felt. Um, But the difference between my, my poker career and my DFS career is through my poker career. Like I spent time getting better, but I would chalk up my losses a lot of times to just bad luck. And yes, of course there's bad luck and there's negative variants and all this stuff. But um it's not the sole reason you're losing. Right. Yeah. And if you really take a deep dive into your play, you can find leaks and you can find things that you can do better and spots that you may have, you know, you should have three bet or four bet instead of just calling like, you know, there's, there's, there's so many things you can do to improve. And I kind of turned a blind eye to it and just was like, Oh, I'm getting unlucky. Um, and I learned from that because I was losing through DFS and I was like, I was like, no, like I'm not doing well. I'm not doing this correctly. I need to learn game theory. I need to learn. I need to get on the same level as these guys that I'm playing against or else I'm not going to have a chance. Um, So yeah, like I'm familiar with the downswings. I'm familiar with the variants, but it still isn't easy when you put in all this time to learn something and then it's not paying off and you're just like, man, like this is, this is rough. You know yeah. what I mean?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So it's got to be tougher when you are putting in that kind of work, creating your own tools and stuff. It's even tougher because you've put so much more time into it than, you know, the vast majority of people. So, uh, yeah, sure it was tough, but then also just that much more rewarding when it finally does pay off with the tools. <laughs> yeah,
3: man, it was like one of the, uh, something I'll never forget. It was one of like the, the coolest nights when I finally hit that. And like I said, it couldn't have came at a better time. We were looking uh to move to arizona we were looking to buy a house and we were looking you know there was just so much stuff going on in our lives we were we were getting ready for a wedding at that time and there's just like man this this could not have come at a better time and it all like it all just seemed to kind of work out uh how it should have um you know it's just kind of crazy when you look back at it but yeah it was very cool very cool uh
2: but so so you started playing dfs in like 2015 or so is that is that right
3: (laughs) yeah man so yeah i started uh i remember i got a text from one of my buddies and it was like dude you would love this and i'd always been um big into season long and i liked okay. it yeah. um you know I've, i always thought that you know i was good at it and you know whatever the case but uh the the weight from the start of the season to the end of the season to get your payout that really is like <laughs> inconsequential at the end of the day like yeah. um it, it it just wasn't as much of a a passion like like poker was for me where any day you could log on, you could go into a $20 tournament and you could win 10 K or 20 K. Right. Um, and so he, my buddy texted me and he's like, dude, you would love this, this FanDuel thing. And i had seen the commercials. I'd seen the DraftKings commercials the FanDuel commercials and I kind of ignored it. Uh, but, uh, he had the promo link. He got a $10 deposit. I got a $10 bonus and, uh, basically just started playing like everyone else would like, okay, I'm looking at, quarterback, who do I think is going to be the best quarterback who, you know, whatever. And it was just very, very surface level analysis. Like, I think I can pick players better than you can pick players. Um, And I did that for a couple of years, you know, that that strategy where I was just, I just thought my knowledge was superior to everyone else's. Um, It's not until I realized that DFS isn't about players. It's more about lineups. Yep. Um, That's when I started to, to win and turn it around. And when I got a better understanding of game theory, I had to educate myself on game theory um, further than my current knowledge if I ever had a chance. And so, yeah, for two years, I was just, I was just picking guys and I was doing it seriously. I thought I was doing the right things, but I wasn't. Yeah. Um, But it took that experience to realize that I wasn't doing the right thing. You know,
2: And I think that's, that was true for a lot of us. And that's uh, that part of the reason that the game was so, back in 2015, 2016, which sadly I didn't have a lot of success then either. I feel like if you could just, if we had the knowledge that we have now back in 2015, there are so many of us who would have absolutely crushed in that time. But of course uh, we also like, i mean for me i'm I'm using the stochastic tools those tools weren't available either if you were like doing what you were sure. doing where you're actually creating your own tools if you had been doing that in 2015 you would have probably just absolutely raked it in whereas now it's like you can do well it's just the, the field is so much better you really do have to uh you, you gotta out level people in terms of game theory and stuff which at that point i mean honestly if you if you just had the best projections in 2015 you were probably doing pretty well uh Whereas now you need the best projections. You also need to understand game theory and understand the game so much more than you did at that time. But so it took you a couple of years to be a winning player. Am I uh, understanding that correctly?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wasn't like a a heavy loser, but um, with the rake and me just not hitting any huge scores. Right. And I play mostly tournaments. Um, I almost strictly played, I strictly play tournaments now, but even back then I wasn't really playing much cash. So, um you you're kind of relying on those big paydays where you're hitting you know a top five in a tournament or even top three in a tournament where you can you know get your buy-ins for the next three five six months or whatever uh and i wasn't i really hadn't hit any big scores at that point so yeah i was i was a losing player for three years um again it wasn't crazy losing i was probably losing like I don't know, probably 5%, 8% ROI, something... Losing to the rake, essentially. Yeah, essentially, exactly. Um, But yeah, you know, a lot of what you just said was almost like a parallel to poker, too. Like, if I knew at the end of my poker career what I knew in the beginning, in terms of, like, solvers and and game theory optimal and all this stuff, like, yeah, you would crush. But, like, that's the the natural evolution of a strategy-based game. You know, people people level up and they because the incentive is there the incentive for first place is there and then people learn off of those people and the game evolves uh which is why DFS is such a a great game man because it's ever it's ever evolving you, you have to stay ahead if you want to keep winning um yeah. so yeah
2: and the nice thing is I feel like the, the skills that so like now we're sort of just like I mean uh, or as I can speak for myself kind of like keeping up with the field trying to stay on top of it but I feel like having this experience with DFS of like learning how to play is going to be applicable in the future to other endeavors. We don't know what those are going to be yet, but I feel like learning the game theory and stuff is always going to be, you know, in, in future endeavors, we might be ahead of the curve because the field isn't quite there yet. Too. Do you agree with that?
3: Um Yeah. I mean, there's always going to be the next thing, right? And we don't have the foresight to know. Um, I'm a little worried with AI that the playing field is going to get leveled more quickly. Um You know, if people can just type into a chat GPT 10 or whatever we're going to be at in a couple weeks or months here, like, um hey build me a, a dfs simulator and it just spits it out like yeah that's gonna be a lot it's gonna be a challenge for for people um you know who 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 have used their their minds and their abilities to create stuff that would give them an advantage so we'll see i mean what the future brings it's kind of a scary thought once with how fast things are moving but there sure. will be another thing. Uh, there will be another game theory component to something in the future, and I do agree that our knowledge um, of that. I don't know if you you play poker at all, Neil, but uh, poker helped me yep. in DFS, so now I'm hoping DFS and poker help me in something in the future as well. Yeah, yeah,
2: absolutely, going to be. I'm sure I'm sure it'll be helpful with something. That's a good point, though. Chat GPT, man, maybe th- things are changing. The landscape might change quickly with with AI stuff. Uh, could make things tough. Let me take a minute away from this conversation with Brian Berryman to tell you about NBA Bet Pro. Stochastic's top-ranked DFS pros have made millions of dollars in daily fantasy contests using Stochastic's NBA DFS player projections. Now users can have direct access to the same NBA player stat projections that drive our winning DFS player point projection models. With this data, users can apply advanced sports analytics to player prop bets and get an edge on the sportsbooks. These NBA projections are directly managed by Stochastic's team of established experts, including Alex Baker, Steve Buzzard, and Sean Zahn for a limited time you can get a 7 day free trial of betpro for new users then it's $15.95 per week or 55.95 per month use the link in the description of this video to take advantage of that 7 day free trial yeah. um, I noticed as I was uh, just scrolling through your your twitter timeline that you actually did some content at some you did, you did some NFL showdown content when you were at fantasy labs did you do did you yeah. do a lot of content and did you enjoy doing it
3: I loved it um I did not do a ton of it because that was a late, a late addition to my job. Okay. Um, you know, it was probably I had done it maybe for three months or something like that before you know I moved on to Stochastic. So it's it's not something that I did a ton of, but it is something that I liked to do. and um, I really enjoyed it because it gave me just like this open forum to try to reach players that w- were like me in the past. Right. And trying to explain the things I've learned over the years that have helped me get better and try to simplify those concepts so that people can understand them. Because I used to listen to all podcasts all the time and and the level of knowledge on those things can sometimes get so high level that it kind of goes over your head. Um, so I really enjoyed simplifying things down, explaining why I was doing stuff, explaining why I was liking certain players. Um, it was fun. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and something that, yeah, I'd be open to doing in the future for sure.
2: Nice. I mean, since you're at Stochastic, I figured I should ask, we can, we can put you in the back pocket as somebody we can call on. Yeah, if we, if we got absolutely. Some, some needs. Yeah. Not that I make any of those decisions for, for, but you know, maybe, maybe if Greg is listening, maybe, maybe he'll think about throwing <laughs> on some content or something. Uh, speaking of, so, so when did you get your start at Stochastic and what does your work involve currently?
0: Did you miss your deadline to renew your Medicaid coverage?
3: So I started in when was that? Right around Thanksgiving this past year. So I'm, I've been there almost six months now. Okay. Um, in terms of my work, um, basically I am responsible for uh, curating and building new products and managing our existing products on the site. So um, if you've used or if you've seen, some of your listeners may have used our like our lineup generator for yeah. NFL or NBA. Um, you know I worked hands-on with with those tools trying to make them better um you know adding our stacking logic adding our player locking logic um <clears throat> stuff like that and uh currently the stuff we're working on i can't I can't say right now uh, but it is uh it's groundbreaking stuff and I cannot wait to share it with uh with all you guys that are listening here uh the team the, d- the development team the product team the data team has been putting in some, some crazy hours and the, the products that we're going to be building for you guys here within the next month or two is is truly exciting and uh, be on the lookout for those announcements from, from us, because it's going to be, it's a good time to be at stochastic. I'll just say that.
2: Yeah, I talk about AI, possibly breaking breaking the game for DFS. I think stochastic might... might. I've heard just a little bit, so I I obviously don't have... Um, I'm not as in the loop as you are, but I've heard a little bit about what's coming down the pipeline and the stochastic tools. And I'm like, yeah, we might actually break the DFS landscape because the tools are just going to be so good. But uh, yeah, as you said, can't get into specifics. But anything else you uh, were going to say?
3: No, no, no. I mean, what you're saying is accurate and something that we've talked about um, on a high level a bunch of times, right? And it's just like, look um, the game is evolving, right? Yeah. When optimizers came out, everyone thought that was going to break the game of DFS, right? Optimizers like, okay, well, everyone has an optimizer. Now the game's broken. Um, it just turns out that was just now it's surface level knowledge to, to right. use an optimizer. So, um, yeah, there, there's obviously these tools are going to be very powerful and it's going to be something that's going to be, um, a potential adjustment, but we're excited. We're excited for what the future brings for sure.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Good. Good to be on the inside, I suppose, to possibly uh, to, to, to benefit from those tools, be able to start using them right when they do come out. Um, maybe this is an obvious question, but in which sport or sports do you think you have the biggest edge in DFS?
3: Yeah, for me, it's golf, um, no doubt, because <clears throat> golf is a, an interesting game because you look at basketball, right? And the projections have gotten so damn good in the industry uh I mean our projections some nights I will look back at some of the box scores and I'm just like man we we absolutely nailed this slate right and it's just like how crazy we can predict you know down to uh, sometimes like a tenth of a point like how well a player is going to perform uh is mind blowing to me and that level of accuracy does not exist in PGA yeah. um there's a variety of reasons for it but if if you play golf or know anyone who plays golf um the, the variability in golf from shot to shot, hole to hole, round to round is, is borderline unpredictable. Like your elite players, the elite players in the field, you can somewhat predict because they're consistent and they're elite for a reason and they're elite because they're consistent. Every golfer in the field at a ceiling level can, can beat any other player, right? If they have a great day, um, that is unique to golf. It, right, And so the variability and the unpredictability, you have to really know these players. You have to know their profiles. You have to know what they do well. You have to know what kind of courses they do well at, you know, harder courses, easier courses, um, wind conditions, right? Do they play better in the wind? Do they not play better in the wind? Do they putt better on certain grass types, right? Do they putt better on Bermuda grass or, or bent grass? Um, that is all, yes, it's it's into a projection. I'm not saying projections aren't important because they are, they're, they're very important and a huge part of my process but they're not the be all end all like they are in NBA. Um, you know, and some people will, will make their own projections in M- in NBA and maybe they're better than some of the ones that are out there, but the tools that are out there for NBA are so good um, that that is more of a game theory game. Golf is definitely still a game theory for sure. You definitely still use projections, but there's more knowledge on the players than in any other sport, in my opinion, because it, it's just, one, it's a single player, right? You're not relying on a team. You're not relying on any other factors. It's it's one person, and from shot to shot, and day to day, you know, a golfer can go out there and shoot 68 one day, and the next day, in the exact same course on the exact same weather conditions, can shoot a 73. It doesn't mean anything in their skill set. It's just the nature of the game. Um, so knowing these players, every player on the tour, I, I can tell you their their profile, right, and I can tell you uh, what they what they do well, what they don't do well, and that to me gives me a nice edge when people are mostly just looking at projections because golf is not a, a very projectable sport at the end of the day.
2: Very interesting. So I, I really want to get into your, uh, your golf process a little bit, talk a little yeah. bit more about the strategy. We've we got a few questions related to golf process as well. So we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll get into that. I, I'll save it a little bit though. Cause that's a, I've got a, a number of questions that I just want to ask about your process as well. Figure I'll do that first and then we'll get into your, your golf process specifically a yeah. little bit. But uh, so just starting in general process question, do you use, do you do any simulations of your own? I know you said you learned R to do simulations. Are you still using your own simulations? Do you use these stochastic simulations? Uh, what do you do as far as simulations go?
3: Yeah, I do run a simulation every week. Um, well, I guess we'll just talk about golf because that's my main focus right now. Um, I'll run a simulation. um, And what the simulation helps me do is just get a baseline understanding of where, what players are going to be the most popular. Because uh, my simulation, basically what it does is it spits out uh, optimal lineups, right? And so it'll, it, it basically is just like a massive optimizer, but it's spitting out real life optimal lineup outcomes based on projections and standard deviations. So this is why I say like projections are still a big part of my process because yeah. I use them to get this baseline understanding. Right. Um, so I'll run that. And then basically I'm determining, um, against my optimal percentage, you know, against ownership, you know, what plays might make for good fades this week, what plays might make for good overweight plays. Uh, and that just gives me a very, very baseline understanding at that point is when I start to dive more into the course, I start to dive more into um, some of the other factors that maybe we can talk about a little bit um, here as well. But yeah, simulations are a part of my process, but it's not, it's not the entire process.
2: So you, it sounds to me like you have your own version of the top golfers tool that we have at Stochastic, where it gives you, you know, here's our projected ownership for different golfers. Here is how often they end up optimal in our sims. Is that mm-hmm. is that kind of right? Is it's a similar thing to what we have for the top golfers tool?
3: Yeah, definitely. I mean, by using the the top golfers tool on Stochastic, you're getting a lot of the baseline understanding that I'm getting from my own tool, right? Okay. And that's why like per, the the Stochastic tools are so next level. Um, you know, a lot of people or a lot of our competitors really aren't offering something like that, right? And so that is a huge advantage of the Stochastic subscription is you're getting very high level analysis and very high level data that you can only get by by building like a simulator and we're we're giving that information to you uh, with to, with the subscription cost so uh, yeah it's a great point it's, it's very similar to that
2: okay interesting and an in optimizer I assume you're using fantasy cruncher is that is that the case I mean you come from lab so I don't know if you uh, yeah that. no I use
3: I use uh fantasy cruncher um, you know I was using labs when I was there um, I don't want to uh, Fantasy cruncher to me has always been the cream of the crop in terms of yeah. optimizers. I, I um, agree. It, it's faster, it's more customizable. Um, and it really it, it is like the gold standard in the industry to me. So, uh, yes, that is what I use now.
2: Yeah. I think it's, I think it's widely considered the gold standard among people who've tried multiple, I think just because of the ability to, uh, a, adjust things for yourself to to really make it make it your own. Um I, I I found it the easiest to use, but uh wasn't sure if you if you had switched over since you moved here. That's good to <laughs> be here. Um and do, do you do any of I mean do you use these stochastic projections or I mean you say you do sims are you mm-hmm. using like stochastics projections as an input for those sims or are you using something else as an input? I mean t- to the yeah. extent you're willing to share.
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Stochastic projections are a big part of the proje- uh, of my process for sure. Um I also create my own projections as well. Okay. Um, I was creating the projections at Fantasy Labs while I was there for golf, so I um, I have a process in place for that as well. Um, that is a is nice just because from a differentiation standpoint, you know, if everyone's using the same projections, a lot of people are going to land on the same players. So yep. if I'm able to put in my own custom inputs and get my own custom projections, uh, that's just going to get me of a, a different set of players that may pop uh, against the, uh, the field. And when you're playing yeah. 50, 60, 70,000 people uh, in a tournament, you know, being different is a huge part of it. So, um, so yeah, definitely stochastic projections are, are part of the process, but not the entire thing.
2: Okay. Yeah. and I mean, it's like, a, I don't know if you're very familiar with, I mean, you won the hundred thousand NBA DFS. So I know you've played it, but like Travis Petty. So he a former guest of mine is a great example of somebody who, just doing his own projections is kind of what sets him as uh, sets him apart from everybody else. So it makes sense to use the stochastic projections. And then if you have the ability to do your own projections, that may, maybe show you some things that you know maybe places to get different. I can see how that would be extremely useful. Um, one thing I want to touch on that I, I thought was interesting. So you said that you do your simulations first, and then you start looking at course history and stuff. So that that's not uh, factored into your projections like the you know the the course itself those kind of things are not already are, are you're not double counting there
3: no that's that's not 100 percent true okay what I, so how i start the week if you want me to go through the like i can go through my golf process if that would give you more context or if you want to wait on that we can do that too but no um, let's do
2: it let's just let's jump in now okay. let's talk uh I'll, yeah we, we got this question from rafael michael so to ask him uh how in the fuck do you win at pga dfs every time i try <laughs> play and i don't win shit it's almost like it has nothing to do with skill at all just dumb stupid stupid luck lol yeah so that's uh he- he's joking obviously but that's uh sometimes how it feels to so those of us who are bad at pga dfs it's like is there is there skill involved here there's no correlation or anything and then of course i see the same people winning consistently so i'm like i know that there is more to it that that i'm just missing that it's a it's a different game than and i think you've sort of gotten into it a little bit how it is different how it is more you got to know the players you got to know the course all that kind of stuff but yeah let, let's let's just dive into yeah how do you make good pga lineups how, how, how do you uh tell me about your process a little bit
3: yeah so the first thing i do every week so monday Uh, Sunday night, if I'm really ambitious, but typically on Monday um, is when I start doing course research, right? Um, And there's two different aspects of course research that I like to do. There's a qualitative and a quantitative side of things. Uh, On the quantitative side, essentially what I do is run a linear regression of all the years past at that course, taking um, where the player finished, what their strokes gained were in approach around the green and putting and off the tee, right? And running a linear regression to tell me um, how correlated finishing placement is to the different stats, right? And that's going to give me a baseline understanding from a quantitative standpoint of what stats or combination of stats are the most important in terms of that course and being successful at that course, right? Um, So once I have that, then I'm I'm gonna watch the flyover of the course. And most courses on the tour have like a YouTube flyover that you can find. And there's a really good site called Pro Visualizer as well. That if you can't find a YouTube, you you can use Google Maps and kind of map out the course, uh, which is really cool. And and doing that gives me a really good understanding of what types of players uh, I'm looking for. Now, I play golf. I'm like a seven handicap or something. So I have a, a relatively good understanding of what players need to be thinking off the tee, into greens, what they're looking to avoid. Um, and that, that baseline level, it, like, it doesn't help all that much, but it does give me a different understanding of how these players are going to be attacking the course Mm -hmm. that if you don't play golf and you don't have those thoughts going through your head, like, uh, it may, it may be a little bit different. Right. So once I'm doing that, I'm watching the flyover, and then I'm seeing, okay, now I understand from a quantitative standpoint through my linear regressions and a qualitative standpoint, what guys I like. And what the, pr- the player profile that I'm looking for yeah. uh, and yeah. who I think is going to be good right um, so once I have that on Tuesdays typically I'll build my um, stat models um, if you play golf PGA DFS seriously um, getting a tool like Rick Rungood or uh, Fantasy National the, you need some sort of data aggregation tool that you can make custom models right and this is going get this is going to be a huge. Uh, part of the process because uh, now I know what I'm looking for from a stat basis. Then if I can start to apply those stats to a the entire field and see which players are doing well in those particular categories, then I can start to identify, okay, these are the guys that I'm going to be like centering my week around a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I built the custom model and that's when I run after that, that's when I run the simulation, right? So because I'm able to input all that stuff into my own projection sets, I'll use the stochastic projections. I'll use my projections. Um, and come up with like sort of like a, I don't want to say like an aggregate, but a, a blended metric that is going a to give me,
2: aggregate. Like, yep.
3: yeah exactly that's going to give me a a projection that I'm comfortable with for the player, and then I'll run the simulation and then I understand okay so based on what what I'm seeing here now the, the game theory and strategy comes into it um, who if if I'm showing a optimal percentage of ten percent and someone's twenty percent owned right. Um, is, does that player have a fragile projection? For example, a player like Patrick Rogers, um, he's a very, very boom buff player in in PGA. He'll, he'll go out there, he'll miss three cuts in a row and then he'll get a third. Um, and he's very, very boomer buff, right? And so he's a great tournament play on some weeks, but he's not a great tournament play if he's going to be negative leverage. Like, 20, right. if, if if the field's going to own him twenty percent, that's a fragile projection. And mm-hmm. I'm likely going to avoid that player if I'm seeing that I'm showing negative leverage on him, right? And like those are the decisions that I type, like I make uh, for every player in the field based on all the factors that I kind of gotten to at this point. <clears throat> at this point, right? So. Uh, from there, once I have a, a firm understanding of like the players that I'm gonna be high on, the players I'm, I'm thinking about fading, uh, on Wednesday, I'll wait for ownership projections to solidify. Uh, they tend to move quite a bit from Monday, Tuesday into Wednesday. But by like Wednesday afternoon, like the, the ownership projections are feeling pretty solidified across the industry. And then I go to work I'm like, okay, what are my percentages that I want to have of these guys? Um, how do I want to attack this now that I understand the landscape of the slate? I understand what my opponents are going to be doing. I understand the general roster construction that they're going to be going with. And how do I leverage that? Um, because golf is so fragile and the projections are very, very fragile. Um, the game theory aspect of things comes into play quite heavily. And that's how I navigate these big fields.
2: Okay, so it's so it sounds like ownership is a big part of your process, and you're, uh, you're you're not exactly creating your own ownership. It sounds like you're aggregating ownership projections. Correct. I do
3: not make my own ownership projections. Um, I, I there's just people out there that are doing it better than I could do it, and there's no reason for me to recreate the wheel. It doesn't really give me much of an edge. Like creating your own projections would would provide a little bit more of an edge than. own ownership projections. I guess if you were so good at ownership projections that you could nail it, then yeah, of course do it. But I I just I trust the resources out there. I trust our guys that are doing our ownership projections. And they're smarter than me. And so I just a lot of times I'll just roll with with what they're going with. And it tends to be fairly accurate. You know, the ownership projections, especially if you if you aggregate them across a couple different sources, like it tends to be pretty accurate. So you get a good understanding of the landscape heading into into the slate kicking off on Thursday morning.
2: Yeah, definitely. Definitely very useful to, uh, yeah, I would never try to do my own ownership projections just because I know I can count on ours being pretty good here. Um, would you call yourself an exploitative player? Like trying to, you know, if you see a positive leverage spot, are you trying to get, you know, above even where you, how often do you have a player being a golfer being optimal? Like if you, if you have them at uh, 10% projected ownership and 20%, chance of being optimal in your sims are you trying to get to more than 20 percent? are you trying to get to exactly 20 how how do you approach that kind of thing
3: yeah yeah there's no blanket answer for that because um it depends on the player okay. if it's a player that um i know like for example like next week for the masters right like the course history is such a massive massive component at the masters whereas a, a different course it, it's completely random and course history doesn't mean anything Course history at Augusta is the most predictive out of any course on tour. And so if I look at that and I say, okay, I have this guy who's positive leverage.
0: Did you miss your deadline to renew your Medicaid coverage? You can still send your completed annual review form to Healthy Connections Medicaid. You may be assigned to another health plan, but you can ask to come back to first choice within 60 days of renewed Medicaid eligibility. It's your family, it's your choice. First choice is the right choice. Renew and choose us. Visit selecthealthofsc.com renew to learn more.
4: Seeing is believing, and you're not going to believe how bright and vivid the colors are on the Samsung Neo QLED and OLED TVs powered by the neural Quantum Processor, because this is an audio ad. Unless you can see it, which means you already have one. Nice. Samsung, more wow than ever.
3: He's he's not going that um, highly owned right now because he's been playing like shit. But I know that he loves Augusta National, and I know that at any moment he he can come in there and and shoot a low one, and all of a sudden now you're in the mix because you you have a four percent Justin Rose like a few years ago, like he had missed four straight cuts, and he was going into Augusta and no one was playing him. And I'm sitting here looking at this. I'm like, this guy has a great track record at Augusta national. Like this is well worth the risk. Um, so really it just depends on the player. You know, if the player is fragile and I'm, I'm having positive leverage, I'm, I'm still going to play him, but I may not press it as much as I would if I feel conviction on somebody else, uh, based on all the factors I talked about, right. My custom model, my, my course, um, uh, fly my, my linear regression model, uh, all that stuff kind of plays into it, uh, throughout the week. And, and so, there's no blanket answer for that, but I do, I do like to push my leverage if I feel comfortable with the player.
2: Do, it, when does the master start next? Is it next week that it starts? Yeah, next week, man. Okay, because that was that was the uh, the other listener question. I was Tom asked. Yeah, what, what's his core? <laughs> uh, he says <laughs> for tomorrow, but I uh, I don't think there's nothing starts tomorrow. Um, you uh, yeah. Uh, well, have you have I you, think you he, started working on it? Yet, it sounds like.
3: No, well, because I was I was heads down on the Valero. So the, there was a tournament that kicked off this morning. Um, so now that that has kicked off, um, typically I'll take Thursday and Friday off. I'll typically golf in the mornings on Saturday myself because I love to play golf. Uh, and then Saturday night into Sunday, I'll start prepping. And then I, I don't like to... What I've, what I've made a mistakes in years past with these big majors is like overanalyzing it, right? I'm putting in... Uh, sometimes I was putting in like double the amount of time and I got analysis paralysis. Um, yeah. So I think it's important like, to keep your same process if you know it works, um, regardless of the slate you're playing. Because if you start to think, oh, this is a big slate, like I, I got to do extra stuff, like you're going to put yourself under more pressure. You're going to potentially get to a point where you're looking at so many different things that you don't even know what's important anymore. Right. Um So I like to just really keep my same process regardless of the week. Yeah. It's the masters. It's natural. I'm super jacked about it. I'm probably going to put in more time, uh, but I'm not going to do anything different from a process standpoint. You know, I'm going to really try and keep it consistent uh, because over the years I've refined it and I know it works. Right. And so I don't want to get
2: too crazy. I like that. Just, just go with the process that works. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm guessing you don't want to give Tom your core though for the masters. (laughs) If he follows me on
3: Twitter, um i post uh, an article every week that i write for stochastic which is my dfs core place
2: oh, nice. and okay.
3: so um there was a core article that went out yesterday for bolero on wednesday of next week my master's article will go out i think actually i'll talk to our, our editor-in-chief tommy and see if we can get that out maybe a day earlier nice. uh, because it is the master see if we can get it out on tuesday but uh yeah follow me on twitter every week and you you will get
2: my my core plays at 13, Airman or Berryman, but with a yes. one three for the B. Yeah, um, yeah, B, yeah,
3: it's a one three and then E R R Y M A N. Like think of Berryman, but one word. And instead of the B, it's a 13.
2: Perfect. Um, what about uh, so? So in, in PGA, how much do you concern yourself with being duplicated? Like you're having your entire lineup duplicated by somebody else? Is, are, are there contests where that is a big concern for you? Does it vary from contest to contest?
3: Yeah, uh, duplication is a, a huge EB eater, right? Like if you're duplicated and you happen to get all the all the chips to fall your way, and you're splitting that 50k prize pool, like that that sucks, right? And so, yes, it's I wouldn't say I'm like overly concerned about it. It's not something I obsess over, but it is something that I definitely tend to to monitor as I'm inputting my lineups. Right, uh, a, a good way of doing this is by looking at the geometric mean of your lineups. So for those who don't know geometric mean, I don't know the basic, uh, the 100% definition of it, but uh, essentially it's kind of the, the theory like, you know, when you look at the total ownership of a lineup, you're really just adding up all the, all the uh, ownership projections in your lineup, but that's not giving you the full picture of how unique it is. Um, if you have a lineup that has uh, five guys at 20% and one guy at 5%, uh, that's 120 or uh, what is that? 105% total ownership for an addition. Um, but if you also have a lineup that's like, we'll say 40%, 50%, five, five, and three, it still adds up to you know 105 or whatever when you add it up, but it's a very, very much more unique lineup because you want to look at the the sum product of the lineup. You want to multiply these, these numbers together in your ownership projections to get a better understanding of how unique it is in the field. Um, so geometric mean is another means of getting that number. And so basically what I try to do is calculate a, a, a geometric mean target that I'm looking to stay underneath. Um, and there's ways that you can do that. If you just Google it, there's, there's different ways that you can find like a target geometric mean and then the geometric mean for all your lineups. And I just try to stay under that number. You know, if, if the field has 50,000 people and there's a geometric mean of say like 14, I'm trying to get all my lineups that I'm entering in to stay under 14. And it's like, it's not that hard of a metric to hit, but, um, uh, my duplication is very, very low, um, across all my lineups just by following, something like that. So uh, yes, it's a big part of it. I don't obsess over it, but you definitely should be paying attention to it.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So I'd never heard that term uh, geometric mean before. Maybe I'll, I'm going to have to Google that and kind of see yeah. if I can factor that into my process a little bit more, particularly for uh, for PGA and in sports mm-hmm. where it is a bigger concern. Uh, what, what about showdown versus main slates? I mean, it sounds like you, you've kind of laid out your process for main slates. I know you. I, I saw you won fifty thousand dollars in a PGA showdown contest not too mm. long ago. Does your does your process differ much for showdown?
3: The process itself doesn't differ much, and what's great about showdown is I don't have to start my research all over. I already have a baseline knowledge right of the course. I have a baseline knowledge of the players. I know which players I like. The custom model <clears throat> doesn't change. So here's here's the thing with showdown. And why I like it. Um, people overreact to tangible numbers that they just saw. Yep. right? So if a good player goes out there and shoots four over par in the first round, they just automatically assume in their brains, like our brains love attaching certainty to things. And just because what happened one day, uh, it, it, there's, especially in golf, there's zero indication to what's going to happen the second day. So a good player first round goes out there and shoots a four or four over par. Um, his ownership is going to drop significantly, uh, for that second round. And that's just like human psychology. Yep. And so I like, I don't change anything in the process. I still like the same guys, regardless of what they shot in round two and round one. Uh, those, those sample sizes are so irrelevant in the terms of the overall data set. And so, taking advantage of, of that, where I know this player is good, I know he's a good fit, he's been playing well, he just had one or two bad rounds. I'm going to roster him in round three uh, and get him at a, an ownership discount. Um, and the other thing, too, is like the ownership projections in Showdown are not nearly as good. Um, they are, I wouldn't say bad, but they're, they're just not reliable. And so there's, there's, there's more of like a wild west field to it where you can kind of really your game theory comes into play, like knowing, trying to predict what other people are doing, even if you're relatively good at it, you're going to have such a leg up on the guys who are just strictly putting in, uh, based off a of feel or based on what happened in a two round sample size before. Um, so yeah, process doesn't change as much, but I do try and get more game theory involved into it
2: is part of it that like so for showdown part of it is your finishing position right so like if it's a day two showdown it's whoever uh is leading after 36 holes does get some bonus points for being in first place is that right
3: no finishing position only comes into play on the fourth round oh really okay so, I, I was yeah. thinking, okay round one uh, two and three it, it's it's really just that one round sample size that's all that matters
2: Interesting. So it, it's really just uh, people just overreacting to this golfer did well yesterday. He's, you know, he's playing well right now. So he's going to play well tomorrow. That's all it comes down to is people just saw somebody do well. So they think they're going to do well again.
3: Yeah. Like if you look at um, whoever's leading after round one, if you look at their their first round showdown ownership compared to their second round showdown ownership, sometimes it triples. Uh, and based on what one round, like yeah. um, that's why like they're like the edge in golf right now, like I, I, it's show, showdowns a huge edge for sure. Um, and I find myself guilty of not playing enough of it, to be honest. Like I put in so much work and sometimes I'm just like, on Thursday nights. Like the last thing I can think of is like going and grinding out more showdown lineups. I'm just like so burnt out from the process Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday yeah. that I just don't want to do it. But really that's a leak in my game. I really should be focusing on showdowns, especially um, round two, round three because round four, like you said, it introduces a little more certainty when you're adding finishing positions, right? Like um, that's a pretty big component of the scoring. I usually don't play round four showdowns because of that. Uh, But round two and three, there's so much money to be made. Um, And the showdown contest that I won was on a a round three showdown. Um, So yeah, I, I totally, totally should be playing more. And I think everyone should be playing more because I think it is a very profitable game
2: yeah i've heard that elsewhere that it's just so exploitable because the field is so bad at playing showdown so if you do play it smartly there is a huge huge edge there so yep. I, I should probably be trying it out as well trying to take advantage of the field making mistakes but i i, I have also never gotten into pga showdown so maybe it's, it's a leak in my game too maybe maybe i can shore up some of my pga is, is has been my worst sport by far in terms of dfs so maybe i can uh, Make a comeback if I start playing some showdown more so than the regular stuff. Yeah. Uh, um. So, so Brian, that's uh, all the questions out here, and I know you have a hard out in six minutes. So let's uh let's get to the the closing thoughts, which I I always like to finish by asking. Uh, tell me about your favorite DFS win or win celebration.
3: <clears throat> well, there's two, and I don't I don't know nice. if I can. You can do can both. Separate them. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So the the first one was obviously special. I kind of touched on it a little bit. Um, that was a goal of mine for years and years and years. And so many people told me I was wasting my time. So many people told me it wasn't going to happen. Right. And, um, but for every one of those people, I had two people telling me to keep going, two people supporting what I was doing. Right. So, yeah. um, that night when, so I had, I had a, a 2% owned PJ Washington that I needed two points from down the six, final six minutes to, to leapfrog into first place, uh, with like a minute 45 left, he got the ball on a pick and roll and dunked it for me to go ahead nice. um, and then it was just like no turnovers right just don't turn the ball over and I went um, so once the, the final horn blew it was like kind of like a whirlwind of, of stuff going on like I had friends calling me I had uh, <laughs> like my blood was still pumping right it kind of felt like unreal uh, but my wife was in the, the bedroom and she had no idea what was going on I kept the sweat wow. completely silent from her um and so i like went in there and i woke her up and like i said two weeks prior i was thinking about giving up dfs i was just like kind of at my wits end with it i was just not not ready to go and it just it just wasn't great and so when i woke her up and i was like hey i got something to tell you and i just showed her my phone and she didn't believe it at first because i um I'm a big believer in like, uh, visualization and law of attraction and stuff like that. And I had made a, a Photoshop of me, um, winning a hundred grand with my screen name and everything.
4: Um,
3: and I would stare at that and and look at it every day. Um, and so she thought I was showing her that. (laughs) And I was, and so she's like, why are you showing this to me? I'm like, Shelby, this is real. And like the moment we had after that was, it was uh, incredible. It was just awesome. So uh, that's my favorite one because of what it did for us and what it did for um, just everything was like just such a breakthrough in my, in my game. Uh, but the the second one was that PGA one we were talking about. So I didn't even really know what was going on. So I put my lineup saying, uh, I had some stuff going on. It was on Saturday morning and I was playing golf in the afternoon. So uh, we had some stuff to do around the house. Uh, I wasn't really checking the scores. I wasn't really checking my phone at all. Um, and so we, we finished up all the stuff around the house and I had to quickly get ready and go to the golf course or else I was going to miss my tee time. So, um, on the way there, I was at, um, I had to stop and get balls because I had like no balls left to play golf. And I'm looking in the parking lot and, I'm, and I see that I have by far the most holes remaining. Of anyone in front of me and I was only back like 12 points and I was like I could win like I have a legit sweat of winning 50k right now but then I have to go play golf right and so it was like so I'm, I'm, I'm on the course we're teeing off on the first hole and there's like there's like six holes left in the golf tournament and so I'm riding with this guy I just met because he was like new to our group and I'm trying to sweat this DFS contest where I could potentially win 50k. And he's like thinking I'm a dick. Cause I'm not really talking to him. <laughs> uh, and I'm like trying to play golf while I'm trying to to sweat this tournament. And it was like, it was such a rush because like, I wasn't even really playing golf. I was just so focused on what was going on yeah. when the final putt dropped and I won the money. It was like, I I didn't even tell the group because I didn't want wow. to like, I didn't want to like ruin anything that was going on. I didn't want to like, I like I said, I just met this guy. I didn't want to be like, hey, sorry, I just won 50k. Like, what I, just, yeah. yeah, he would
2: have um, thought you were more of a dick at that point,
3: yeah, exactly. And so it was, I just kept it to myself, you know, it was just so I just played like this enjoyable, like 12 holes, knowing I just won 50k. And it was like, uh, it was a beautiful so in Scottsdale, it was playing out in Scottsdale and it was like 75 degrees. It was just like one of those days, it was just like euphoric. Um, I was doing like my favorite hobby, I just won, uh, on my set, you know, my other favorite hobby, I just won 50k. So it was like, uh, life's pretty good right now. So um,
2: did did you tell them after the fact, like at least after the round, did you tell them you just won all that money or you just kept it yourself? I didn't,
3: I didn't, man. I, my dad always taught me as I was growing up, like, he's just like, you know, act like you've been there before. No, no matter what you do act like you've been there before. And I get really uncomfortable posting my wins on Twitter because of that. Um, but I also realized that it's important for the brand, it's important for my own brand. It's and good it's advertising,
2: for, yeah. Yeah,
3: and so like I get really uncomfortable when I have to post it because I am I try to stay humble as much as I can in everything that I do. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I did, long story short, I didn't tell them because there, I just didn't feel like it was necessary. Um, they found out through the grapevine and they're like, what the hell, you didn't tell us? Like we could <laughs> yeah. have been taking shots on the course. I was like, dude, no, right. like I didn't want to, I didn't want to do anything like that. I didn't want the attention on me, so. Um, so yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't say anything kind of funny though. Those, both those stories are, are, are pretty near and dear to me. So, uh, I hope there's more in the future. I really do.
2: (laughs) Yeah. That's a, that's a great story. So the the, the NBA hundred thousand came first. The PGA showdown came later. Is that right?
3: Correct. Yeah. Um, the NBA was in March of 21 and then the showdown was what it was in the FedEx playoffs last year. So probably like August of last year. Okay. Uh, I don't even know the exact date. So, uh, Yeah. Yeah.
2: But I just realized we're right at your, uh, you have a heart out now. So Brian, let's close out, tell people where they can find you.
3: Yeah. Um, so Twitter is, is the main vehicle for me. That's where I post all of my stuff. Um, we've mentioned it a few times. I can be followed at, at one three E R R Y M A N. Uh, it's just my last name, but instead of the B it's a one three. Um, and then, yeah, like it, I would say like definitely, if you're looking to get better at pJDFS like, um, use the stochastic tools. We have great tools uh, for our PGA product, especially with the optimal and leverage. Like uh, I kind of went over how that's a big part of my process. And that's definitely something that uh, is unique to the industry and not necessarily offered anywhere else. So um, if you ever are using stochastic as well, you could always DM me Um, about any product enhancement ideas or anything that you're running into. I am a product manager, so I'm responsible for the quality of the products on our site. So I'm always open to making sure that those things are running smoothly and we're doing as best as we can as a company to give you the best tools uh, on the market. So uh, yeah, I think that's it, Neil.
2: Love that. You can go straight straight to Brian to get your uh to give feedback Absolutely. on what you like in these stochastic tools. Well, thank you, thank you very much, Brian, for coming on to High Stakes episode 34. Thank you to Mike Lawrence for producing as always, and thank you for listening. You'll be able to catch episode 35 of High Stakes in two weeks on Friday, the usual time, Friday afternoon. So uh check it out. Stochastic YouTube channel or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Thank you
4: slash play 100 and use code play 100 that's code play 100 at pricepicks.com slash play 100 for a first deposit match up to a 100 prize picks daily fantasy sports made easy
5: looking for a fun way to win up to 25 times your money this football season test your skills on prize picks the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports just select two or more players Pick more or less on the projection for a wide variety of statistics and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and an enormous selection of players and stat options are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million football fans who have already signed up. Right now, PrizePix will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepickscom get100 and use code get100. That's code get100 at prizepickscom get100 for a first deposit matchup to $100. PrizePix, daily fantasy sports made easy.